After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. Now the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may be put into the king's treasuries." Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman had commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of his peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Hasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn why, what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. As they t and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think of your, to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come, not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him.
Great. Thanks again, Leah. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, welcome. If you're new, especially welcome to our church. We're glad you guys are joining today. We are in a series in the book of Esther, as you probably guessed from the reading. Uh, we're, this is week two of four. Uh, it's a 10-chapter book, um, and so many of you might know uh, we're not, because of that, we're not going to preach or even read every word, but we are going to preach and read the whole story, the mountaintops, and get you through um, basically everything. Before moving on to a different series, uh, which uh, you'll hear about more uh, in a month or so. And so uh, today, and so uh, what is Esther, Esther ultimately about? Uh, just kind of recap, if you're here last week, you got a pretty good introduction uh, to the story, but basically this is a story there are a lot of stories in the Old Testament that, that could be kind of summarized this way, and there's reason for that. But Esther is basically a story about how God saves his people. It's a story about God saves his people from annihilation. God saves his people from exile, from not being where he is. God saves his people from a threat, right? It's a very big threat we learn about today. Um, women, children, men just annihilated in one day. And so uh, more specifically then, it's about kind of before and through that, the way God does this, it's about God helping a young Jewish woman named Esther in Persian captivity with the Jewish people to become the new queen and to have the leverage necessary by being queen to advocate for her people to save them from a type of intra-Persian genocide. That'd be a more expansive way of describing what it's about. Now, if that kind of story or something sort of like that sounds at all like, say, Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, if you know that story, you're not seeing things. These stories are meant to overlap and repeat in order to show us that they're building towards a type of climax where a final version of the stories would come to us through Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, kind of on, on that topic, that this becomes an important part of the way we read the Bible, our interpretational methodology. Not, and not just with Esther, but any part of the Bible. And that is, we start with the end of the book. We start with the New Testament. We start with the person and work of Jesus Christ to understand the beginning, to, to derive meaning from a story like the book of Esther. And, and we do this in part because the Bible does this to itself. We're not making this up. It's not our idea. Um, we, we need to, as Christians, this is, um, this, it might be surprising to you, it might not, but a lot of people just don't do this, and it leads to all kinds of dangerous theological ends. But we need to allow the Bible to tell us how to read itself. So we need to read the Bible the way Jesus read it, or Paul read it, or John read it. They give us an example of how to do that, and so we follow suit. And when we follow suit, we follow their example, we realize they Jesusify everything in the Old Testament in some way, whether explicit, implicit, big or small. Uh, they're always doing that. And so um, we, we need to go past then the top physical layer of what's going on, even though that could be important too, for the deeper spiritual meaning, or as the early church fathers called it, the census planure, which is Latin for fuller meaning. Uh, more on that uh, later today. So last week we met some of the main characters, Esther, her cousin, older cousin Mordecai, who was like a father to her, King uh, uh, Hazarus and others. We read how Esther became queen, how Mordecai helped to foil a plot to assassinate the king. Um, that's going to be very important later in the story. It kind of help, helps give Esther leverage to do her advocating. Uh, this week, we're going to meet the main bad guy, who's named Haman, who ascended to, as you just heard, the second in command over all the kingdom, who is not bowed down to by Mordecai, and who then devised a plan to destroy all the Jews because of it, which ended up being stamped and approved by the king, just stamped into law. And so remember, at this point, the king still does not know that Esther is a Jew. And we do as the reader. 
which is kind of interesting. It kind of adds this dynamic tension to the story. The king doesn't know that his new wife, is not, who he loves, is Jewish. And so that's going to become later, uh, important later and going into next week's sermon as well. But just kind of keep that in your mind. Uh, today we're going to look at this very uh, kind of famous phrase that Esther uh, says, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. It's very likely just barging into the king uh, is, is against the law. It's punishable by death. I'm very, very likely not going to survive this, um, but I, I, I'm giving my life into God's hands. It's this very powerful moment uh, in the story. Uh, so it's a build-up into the climax, which is next week, which she, she actually does. It. But this week, she's just talking about it, uh, kind of back and forth with uh, Mordecai and this courier. All right, so, uh, so and, and again, remember, because this, I know this is pretty new to a lot of you, uh, or maybe some of you, um, if it's a reminder, great. I, I need the reminder too. But remember that it's possible to understand the components of a story, but miss the meaning. It's possible to understand the components of a biblical story well, but still completely miss the, the, the point, the meaning. Many of the Jewish teachers in Jesus' day understood the Old Testament well, on a physical level, the nuts and bolts. But Jesus said to them, like in places like John 5, Jesus said to the Jewish teachers, you don't read it right because you don't see me in it. John 5 says, Jesus speaking, you study the scriptures because in them you believe there's eternal life, but you refuse to come to me, the one those very scriptures testify to. So that indicates, again, you're not understanding or reading the Old Testament right. There's this common sentiment sometimes in uh, interpretation with the Bible that we should read the Old Testament like the Jews did. And the idea there is that we should try to smell the air and get a sense for the culture and try to read it as though the first audience would have understood it and, and by that get meaning. But the problem with that is Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus said, the Jews read it wrong. You, you Jewish teachers, because you didn't see me in them, you missed the meaning, you missed the point. So, the, the lesson there is don't read the Bible like a Jew. Read it like a Christian. Surprise, surprise, right? But we miss this sometimes. Read the Bible like a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. Don't read it like uh, a, a non-Christian Jew because they don't see Jesus in it. They don't centralize the whole point. And so that's what we you know, always do here, of course, but we're, we're um, are attempting to really do in Esther, to not just read the story, but to see Christ himself and his fingerprints uh, all over the narrative. And so today, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at three things. Uh, Haman's plot. We're going to look at Mordecai's clothing. And we're going to look at Esther's sacrifice. All right, those three things. Haman's plot, Mordecai's clothing, and Esther's sacrifice. And I think through that, we learn a lot of rich theology uh, about the gospel that this story um, begins to peel the covers back from. All right, so first, uh, let's look at Haman's plot. Let me read these two verses again to remind you of what's happening here. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazars. Okay, so a few things uh, here to lead us into um, some of the bigger things. This, uh, so there's not a lot of character arc with Haman. You know, we don't like learn about his childhood. He's not a sympathizable villain. You know, like, oh, I can sympathize uh, with what he went through as a kid, right? Like, we don't have any of that buildup. It's just, bam, here he is. He's raised uh, 
to the, the second in command. And then he, then he straight up loses his mind when one guy, out of everybody he walks by, there's one guy that wouldn't bow down to him. And he uh, loses his mind. He plots not to just destroy him, Mordecai, but all of his people, the Jews. And so um, if it's not clear, though I know it is, but if it's not clear, Haman is clearly our antagonist in this story uh, and what we might call an overreactor. Uh, so on one level, though, um, this then becomes, I think, a cautionary tale against pride. I'll come back to this later, too, but um, it certainly is the thread here. It's one thing going on. The Bible says in multiple places, God says, pride comes before an epic fall. Self-exaltation comes before deep humility uh, in so many words. And so it's so not to wreck the ending here, but things are not going to end well for Haman. Um, now, with all of that said, it's one thing to kind of pit Mordecai against Haman and to say something like, be like Mordecai, don't be like Haman. Uh, like Mordecai, bow down to God alone, not to any man or thing, and certainly not to yourself. Uh, sin, the epitome of sin is self-exaltation in the place of God. And so we have in Mordecai here an example of um, a good thing, right? Something, something to emulate. Now, that's a good thing to take from Esther, but problems arise with when that alone becomes the point. When, when, in other words, when we don't just think about our lives in the future tense, but in the past and uh, present tense as well. So by that I mean uh, the, the lesson here is uh, not just, and I would say can't just be, don't be like Haman because we are people with pasts and we are people with presents. And so the lesson's not don't be like Haman. The lesson is you already are. You and I already are a lot like him if we're honest with ourselves. You and I have asked to be bowed down to in different ways. Maybe not straight up legitimately like what's happening here with Haman who's wearing his extreme arrogance on his sleeve. But we have done this. Anytime that we've been arrogant, anytime we've wanted the accolade or recognition for an accomplishment, or frustration with someone who won't recognize the accomplishments. We're exactly like Haman. That's just humanity 101. This is probably what it means to be full of ourselves and self-focused, right, um, in, in different, uh, different levels. From another angle, we could say we're a lot like the Persians, the rest of the Persians who did bow down to Haman and who trusted too much in created things rather than the creator. Uh, all of us have been on that side of things too. We have trusted too much in money or circumstance or health or our spouse. We've deified our spouses or the idea of being married someday. We've made them into gods and we've bowed down to them, trusted, uh, put our, our salvific hope into them and not into God. All of us have done it. We've done it a 10 times this morning before we got here. It's like impossible not to. We do it when we're thinking about it. We do it when when we're not. Yet another angle here would be, um, if you know the Old Testament, you know that Haman is just one more iteration in a long line of people who have wanted to annihilate God's people, right? It just constantly happens. Which means, though, that he's not just a one-off type example of pride, but part of a greater story, which in turn, as I said before about Esther as a whole, tells us that there's an ultimate example of Haman behind Haman. Haman is not really just about Haman, but a taste of a much greater enemy, namely 
the devil, the, the true adversary of, of God's people. Ian Dugwit, a commentator on this passage, says that Haman's enmity towards God's people was merely the latest manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against, in one sense, all humanity. I would just add that. All humanity, because God, Satan hates human beings made in God's image, but especially against the church, especially against the Jews in the Old Testament um, in some way, but especially against the faithful or those who have trust in God, Jew or Gentile, uh, but particularly uh, the church from a New Testament vantage point. Revelation 12 uh, talks about this as well. John gets this vision of a dragon. It says, The dragon, who is the devil, became furious with the woman, the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And that's us. Here in the year 2021, uh, we are the offspring of the, the early church, uh, in, in a way. There's a lot going on. I know it's a trippy vision here, but it's basically what's going on. On those who keep the commandments of God and who believe the gospel, who hold to the gospel of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying all this and giving you a lot of angles on this to basically say this. Whether we see ourselves in Haman or in the Persians or in the Jews, the point remains. We are in deep, deep trouble. For enemies inside the heart and from enemies outside the body. We are simply outnumbered, outmatched, and outgunned. Totally and completely unable to save ourselves. And one of the cool things about reading Esther this way is though it's a part of a greater story and seeing the true Haman behind the Haman in the story is that this is much bigger than we realize, right? And if you think about it this way, everybody in the story of Esther is like on a level playing field in one sense in that everybody's in trouble, it's not just the Jews who are in trouble here, though they clearly are physically. If Satan's at work, if the devil's at work, if the problem is that we are in exile with God, or to God, then everyone's in trouble. King Ahasuerus is in trouble. Haman's in trouble. Esther's in trouble. Mordecai's in trouble. Think to last week, Haggai's in trouble. The couriers are in trouble with today's passage. The Jews are clearly in trouble. We talked about the Persians are in trouble. Queen Vashti, we read about last week, she's in trouble. Everyone's in trouble because everyone's under the thumb of sin. Everyone's being pressed down. Everyone's in exile from God. And so the Jews just become this like small little microcosm of the problem that we all face ourselves, that face us. And that is we are sinners. We are self-exalters. We are a lot like Haman, but because we've sinned against God and not just against other people, um, the devil's at work and we are his children, and God needs to adopt us out of the devil's family, or we have no hope. And, but the good news is, of course, he does through Jesus, and we'll, we'll get to that. But let me, just say, let me say this to put a cap on this point, or this first thing. What we, because of all of this, what we need is not just an example for us to follow in how not to bow down to evil men in Mordecai. Instead, we need a Mordecai to not bow down for us. Do you see the difference? It's one thing just to say, be like Mordecai. Another, another thing to say, we need a Mordecai who's not us to do it for us because we already have bowed down. And we also need him to slay a dragon in the process, which is no small feat, right? Ultimately, uh, to save us. And the rest of the section of Esther, I think, gives us more of a glimpse into what all of this means. It's kind of like a big snowball running down the hill, right? It's, get, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it'll climax the, in the next two weeks, but still, man, we learned a lot of cool stuff today. Um, in these next two sections. So let's, let's go there now. I want to look at this uh, first part of chapter 4. Let's read it again. 
It says, when Mordecai learned that all had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. All right, so, uh, so let me just briefly back up and, and just again say this about our interpretational approach to things like this, because you might read this and think, you know, that's great, but that means nothing. It actually means a lot to us as Christians, and I'll, I'll explain why. But when we interpret passages like this in the Bible, it's best to understand them in a layered sense, because the Bible does this again to itself. And, and I would say, maybe escalate the layers with importance. So we might start then with seeing an example of a man in Mordecai who wept over injustice, or who wept over his own sin, or his own mortality. Or maybe we see an Old Testament example of the New Testament principle of weeping with those who weep, which is an important thing for Christians to do towards each other because it images Jesus to us, a God who weeps over those who wander from him and who associates with our pain when he dies for us on the cross. Or maybe we see an example of a guy without hope, but who we know God sees nonetheless and who saves us. And that, of course, is our story too. Um, but then we might escalate from that and uh, say something like this. If we look at closely at what Esther's doing, Esther is a subtle picture of Jesus. Esther, who provides clothing for Mordecai so he could change out of his clothes of mourning. This is reminiscent beautifully of how Jesus would later in the story say things like, my peace I give you in a consolatory manner. Do not fear. It's basically what Esther's doing for Mordecai by giving her the clothes. The gospel is such that the clothing we put on ourselves to shelter us from the fiery darts of the enemy and from sin itself is replaced by clothing given to us by another. A much better type of clothing. A clothing of peace and promise and hope, which is ultimately Jesus Christ himself. As Romans 13 here says to Christians, put on the Lord Jesus Christ like a robe. Isn't that a beautiful image? Put on Jesus, church. Or if you're not saved yet, put on Christ. Uh, cover your shame and your guilt with him. Uh, clothe yourself with the gospel, with the good news of what he's done for you. That, that, that is, we take that for granted, but that, that is striking. That, that is, for those people, for those of us trying to save ourselves, that is, that flies right in the face of it, right? Because to put on something outside of you is to say nothing you've ever done is sufficient. And that's good news. Don't wash yourself. Don't clean yourself. Don't make your own clothes. Don't shelter yourself from the storm. Take on what God has given you, and that is his son's death in your place. Put on the son of God himself. This is like weird maybe. It is a bit um, uh, enigmatic maybe, a bit abstract. But praise God, it's not saying be a better person. Praise God, it's not saying be a better version of yourself. This is the opposite of that. Don't put on good works. Don't put on a better version of yourself. Though our, our lives might look like that sometimes as Christ enables that. It's not saying that though. This is saying put on the Son of God onto, add him onto yourself. Don't strip yourself down. 
to the bare essentials of who you are. Um, a Buddhist might say that, right? Um, but Christians aren't Buddhists. Okay, surprise, surprise, right? You learned something today. Christians aren't Buddhists, yeah. No, duh. Uh, but Christians, but we don't think that way. We're not stripping ourselves down to our bare minimum as though that's a good thing. The goodness is down there deep. Christianity says, add Jesus to you. Put him on. Cover yourself with his grace and then you will live. It's wonderful news. But we also see actually in the story, Esther rejects the clothing, right? And I think that's, that's important because it gives us another picture here, which is to look at Mordecai, not just Esther, but Mordecai in that rejection of the type of Jesus. By that I mean, first before he rejects it, he cries out with a loud and bitter cry like Jesus did in Mark 15 when he breathed his last. The idea there being that in Esther we get a glimpse of how a loud weeping cry would associate with our salvation, with, you know, it would come on the heels of the threat of our annihilation from God. How God would come into the world someday to resolve the problem by standing in the threat's way, sparing those of us in the devil's crosshairs. And so, Mordecai rejecting the clothing is akin to Jesus rejecting comfort for you and me. That's partly what Esther is meant to say, you guys, is God loves you so much, he rejected comfort for you. He said no to the clothing of comfort. He said no to the clothing. Think of uh, Matthew 4. Uh, remember that when the devil tempts Jesus with comfort? And Jesus says, no, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of correlation there. I'm not going to go into that today. Um, but Jesus rejects comfort for you. He says, he could have gotten off the cross with a word. We know that. It's clear in the Bible. He could call a legion of angels to come to his aid. But he orchestrates the whole thing to cause himself to die. He wanted to do it. He intentionally rejected a life of not cross for the sake of you and me because the only way for us to be saved is that the Son of God becomes human and dies in our place. And so in this, Mordecai's a glimpse of this. Mordecai cries out bitterly like Jesus does on the cross. Mordecai rejects comfort like Jesus would later do. His whole life was, was one big fat rejection of comfort for you and me, the, the fulfillment of all of that being, of course, the crucifixion. And to talk more about that, let's go into this last section, which is Esther's sacrifice. So we're building here um, as well. Esther 4, 10 to 11, 15 to 16, again to remind you, says, Esther spoke to Hatok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, and that is to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night and night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Okay, so much rich theology here. I, again, um, I, <laughs> as your pastor, um, but I'm going to preach this this way too, but I, I would... Um, I would start by asking the question, look for Jesus, or where do you see him, right, in this passage? Where are the fingerprints of your Savior? Those of you who are saved, who know the voice of your good shepherd, how do you hear call, callbacks to him or callaheads to him in this passage? And it's, and it's amazing what, what you find. I'll start with the big picture, though, maybe the most obvious, and that is Esther is willing to die here, right, to risk her life 
to save the Jews. Uh, She calls for a fast for three days and three nights and then speaks her iconic words, if I perish, I perish. And and all of that is ultimately realized, it's here for the sake of Jesus who would live later, hundreds of years later, and who would say and kind of do the same stuff. It's realized in him who says, uh, when I go away, when I die, you will fast. Jesus does the same thing Esther does here and whose death lasts for three days and three nights. But who, but who kind of dials up what Esther says at the same time and doesn't say, if I perish, I perish. He, he says, when, it's going to happen. When I die, I will die for my people. I will die before God the King, my Father. I will die before him as a sacrifice. I will lay my life down. I will advocate. And like in Luke 9, right? The Son of Man speaking of himself must, look at that word, must, it has to happen. The only way to be saved is through the Son of God's death for us. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, must be killed. And then the third day piece, Esther operates in a three-day way as well to show us Jesus. She could have said anything. Why not two days? Why not four? Why not 20? But she, days, she says, three days and three nights fast. Jesus says, I will die for three days, three nights. During that time, you will fast like I will fast. It's the same story. And it's meant to be clear. It's easy to miss. Don't, be, don't feel bad if you miss it. It's easy to miss. But it's meant to be, when we read the story with Christ, the lens of Jesus, it's meant to pop. Notice also um, this interesting phrase, the inner court. Um, it's the inner court, in verse 11, that could not be entered, right? This is a big, Esther makes a big deal of this. Esther the woman, the book does. But Esther the woman's like, Mordecai. I'm the queen. Maybe you don't know this, but here's what I've learned in my short sentence, queen. Um, You cannot just go see the king. No one can or you will die. No one can see the king. You cannot barge in. There's only one law if you do it, and and that is death. And so what's interesting, though, is when when she uses the phrase inner court, and if you you think about that, that phrase, if you think, man, where else in the Bible have... I read the phrase inner sanctuary or inner court, right? Um, If you know the Old Testament, something might pop to mind. Um, But this whole theme of the inner court going in before the king should call us right back to the temple in the Old Testament where there was an inner sanctuary and where God was and no one could go into the inner sanctuary or guess what? You would die. It's the same story. And so... It's meant to bring us back to that narrative. It's meant to sound like the Holy of Holies, which is what it was called, where no one could go in because God the King was there and we were too sinful. Um, But God was beginning to draw near to his people and to the world that there was still veils and walls and washings and rules. The whole point was you cannot go in exactly like the Persian law, strangely enough. God's over Persian law too, right? To reveal himself to the world. He's using Persian law, non-biblical law, to say, I'm kind of in that as well. Just like you couldn't see the king in the Old Testament story, you can't enter into my sanctuary and see me unless, unless the golden scepter is held out, unless someone is called in. And and if you, again, know the story, there's one that was called in, right? In the Old Testament, a high priest once a year was called into the Holy of Holies to splash blood onto this thing called the mercy seat to atone for the sin of the people. And all of that looked ahead to Jesus who would come to fulfill 
all of that with his own bloody body on the cross. Hebrews 9 says, For Christ has entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. He entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God the King on our behalf. He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Guys, that is exactly what the story of Esther is about. Exactly. It's almost a word-for-word copy, just in spiritual terms. Esther the queen images Jesus' high priestly and kingly work in interceding with her almost death for the people of God, whereas Jesus would intercede with his actual death. She even, uh, it's, it's interesting to build off of that too, she even interestingly says, even though it's against the law, even though I will be breaking the law in doing it, I will go to the king, which I think doesn't just highlight the risk for Esther, but testifies to a couple of things. To put it in New Testament terms, to quote from Romans 3 here, this means that our redemption, our salvation, usurped the law. It circumvented it. It went around the commandments or the old covenant system, which said, do the commandments and then you will live. God stayed in covenant with people based off their moral accolade and ability. Uh, that's, that's not the system, though, that Jesus came through. He came to give a New Testament, a different one, one that fulfilled some of those images but surpassed it with, again, his bloody body. So as Romans 3 says, now salvation has been manifested apart from the laws and commandments of God. The righteousness of God, Jesus Christ himself, so what it means to be pure and righteous, what it means to be saved or redeemed, has been made known to the world apart from law, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from do's and don'ts, apart from the lists and the stipulations and the rules, which held us down and kept us at bay, kept us away from God. Now the righteousness of God has been made apart from the law, although the Old Testament bears witness to it, points to it. When Jesus came, he surpassed it, though. He brought salvation in a new way. Um, And so uh, what this means, there's lots to say about this, guys, but I would just say um, to remind most of you to tell some of you for the first time, your salvation, your redemption in Jesus, because like Esther, he came in a way circumventing the law, not through it. Our redemption has nothing to do with our obedience to God's commandments. Nothing. Nothing. Otherwise, Jesus would have come through it, not around it. Otherwise, Esther would have gone through it and not around it. Hebrews actually uses this phrase, which we just read, Jesus entered a temple not made with human hands, which is to say um, that Jesus went into the temple of heaven and he went into a place not constructed by our ability. So the old temple was made by human hands, the the actual temple in heaven is made by God's hands. Um, this is a big theme too. Uh, some of you might be thinking of Colossians 2 where it says, we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Same thing, right? In the Old Testament, you were circumcised with hands by, done by people, by works. In the New Testament, you're saved by a circumcision or a, a removal of the flesh of sin. Uh, it's what it means. Um, made without human hands or made by grace. It's the same here. 
There's two temples. The physical one, which was law. The second one, which is grace. The first one, which is Old Testament. The second one, which is new. This first one built on the works of human hands. But Jesus went in not to that one. If he did, he would be a priest that would bring more law into our life. He would, he would come to reinstitute it, but he did not enter that kind of temple. He came, like Esther again, around the law, circumventing to create an, a, new, a new thing. I realize this is kind of high theology in some ways and maybe a bit confusing, but it is all here for a purpose. And, and Esther, when she says it's against the law, that is there for our good uh, because your salvation is not based on what you do, not based on your works. Never to be added to you again, once and for all. Or to think in Esther terms here, to say it yet, uh, yet differently, if my clicker will actually work. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, think about Esther terms. The, the king's law was set out to kill all of the Jews, right? And Esther came to the king in violation and apart from another one of his laws, but it was the king's love for Esther. Not to wreck the end here, but here we go. King's love for Esther that trumped the law and eventually saved the Jews. 2 Corinthians 3.6, to say it more straightforwardly in the New Testament, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law kept people away from God. I mean, man, if you get anything from Esther, um, that's kind of what you see, right? Is this not working again? Just in case. All right, thanks, Kurt. Sound guy extraordinaire right there. Look at that. Didn't even ask for it. Wow. You get a bonus. We pay you nothing, but you get a bonus. We'll double your pay, uh, which means nothing. All right, so um, thanks, Kurt. Think about this with it. Anything, Esther is saying, the king's laws keep me away from him, right? That's what the law did. The laws of God do that too. They keep you away. They don't bring you close, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's Persian law, the king's laws keep you away. They build veils and walls. They say you can't come in. But Jesus came apart from the law and breached it, entering and advocating by love, by death, and making a New Testament between us and God. I'm saying the same thing like four different ways, but I'm trying to be clear, is that the Bible is at pains, you guys, at pains to show us this. You are not saved by keeping God's commandments. You don't stay saved by keeping God's commandments. It didn't work. The old system had to be breached, circumvented, gone around in Esther-like fashion, broken for you and me. And that's, what, that's why the veil was torn, why Jesus flipped tables in the temple before he died, bringing damage to it. It was beginning to come to an end. And in, in, in its wake, Jesus becomes the temple. We the spiritually become the temple of God, his dwelling place, right? We have closeness with him. And this is why this last piece is so important, the hope of the golden scepter. Esther's like us as well. As a human being, she typifies us, how because of Jesus' willingness to sacrifice his life for us, we are reached out to by the golden scepter. We're spared. In Psalm 60, God says, Judah is my scepter. Uh, if you know anything about the tribes of Israel, Jesus came from Judah. Uh, to say Judah's my scepter is to say Jesus is my scepter. It's the same thing. He's the ultimate Judahite. Jesus is the thing. Esther's saying all die before God unless Jesus. That's the message of, of the Bible. That's the message of Esther. It's, it's, it's the message of the Bible. In our sin, all die before God unless the scepter, unless Jesus. That's the message, guys. I mean, 
Most of you believe this. If you don't, this is, this is how God is calling out to you right now. He's saying, I love you. I went as a forerunner. I'm your advocate. My son is your advocate. I became like you to die for you. I perished in your place. And through that, I'm, I'm holding out the golden scepter, but it is not based on moral merit. That's the old way. The new way is it's based on him. He's the clothing. He's the scepter. He's the Esther. He's the advocate. He's the priest king. He's everything in this story. We're the beneficiaries. And so just to summarize this in one more swift three-point thing, in case it's not clear, this is what Esther's three and four are saying. We are in deep, deep trouble from enemies inside the heart and outside the body under the sentence of death but there was an inner court entering on our behalf before the king, a representative who went before us, not according to law, but according to love. And through it, we are touched with the golden scepter. We are saved by the perished Christ alone, clothed by grace. It's so easy to, re- to revert. Um, I came across this quote um, this week. My wife and I were talking about this a little bit, but uh, Luke Rowland says, None of us are immune to going back to justification or salvation by works. The old Adam knows how to creep back up again. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb have to beat the hell out of it. Okay, what what that is saying is we have to beat out of our brains this idea that anything we ever do changes God's love for us. We have to, and the way we fight that is by talking relentlessly about the story seeing the story play out in every corner of the Bible. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. Everything, no matter what you've heard, it's true. Jesus says it. The New Testament says it. We've seen it today. He wants you guys to know his love today. Not to look at Mordecai and say, crap, I haven't done that for a while. I feel bad and I'm going to leave. But to leave knowing your love. There was a Mordecai who lived once who wasn't you who perfectly didn't bow down to the devil and who cut his head off when he died on the cross. And he loves you. He wants to know you. If you believe, he lives inside of you. No more separation. Nothing ever to to do to earn that or perform or keep it. Either it is or it isn't. Either we're in Christ or we're out. Either we believe the gospel or we don't. There's no scales. There's no five out of tens. It's either zero out of ten or or ten out of ten in terms of like, are we saved or not, right? So I think what this is saying is that we have to fight, you know, against that tendency. Uh, it's sin. The Bible calls it sin because it's glorifying of the self. And, but the cool thing is, um, Spencer actually shared a quote last, yesterday, if some of you are here for that Progressive Christianity Seminar, and I forgot to put it up here, and it was amazing. It was from Mation. Um, Basically, it, we'll share it on social media uh, maybe this week. It, 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 basically, he's saying Christians for all of history have basically said our life change comes through telling a story. Not by trying harder, not the law. Life change actually comes as a byproduct of appreciating that story, knowing that story, taking in that story, knowing how crazily loved we are by our Creator that he spent it all to save us. And it's interesting, we're learning about this like when we talk about Haman as this extremely arrogant guy. So 
If we want humility, that's where it comes from. It comes from telling the story of God saving us as arrogant people. Not because we've become humble, because we haven't. But in our place of arrogance, he wins us over um, by showing us it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so, um, yeah, I, I wish I had more time to go into that. Uh, but it's, it's so good. This is what changes us. If you don't want to be like Haman, the answer is the gospel, not trying harder. Um, and so that's what's so beautiful about the backdrop, the dark backdrop of all of what we're talking about here. Actually, <laughs> if Haman is a negative example, the, the, the way forward in that area is knowing that we're saved by grace and, and not by what we do. All right, let me pray for us. I'm the band back up. God, thank you for so much for this passage. Um, it is, man, it's deep and nuanced and layered, but thank you for the beauty of your word. Uh, some kind of like simple story like this can... Um, just sort of sometimes be read over, but um, God, thank you for the queen uh, who broke the law, who broke the old covenants, um, who splashed her blood, so to speak, in the inner sanctuary um, in a perishing kind of way so we might be saved. In all of that, representing Jesus who would come after her in her shadow, but really in a lot of ways, Esther's the shadow. Uh, Jesus, you're the reality. Everything in the Old Testament is just, is just a reflection of you. If, if you weren't real, we wouldn't have an Old Testament. It's a shadow, as the Bible says in Hebrews 10, of you. Just a shadow. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so, God, thank you for coming to clothe us, to replace the clothing that we tried to fashion for ourselves. Thank you for being the scepter. Thank you for being like Mordecai, crying out loud in the middle of the streets um, in pain. Thank you for resisting comfort like he did all the way to the cross. Thank you for being like Esther and saying, not if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. And for entering the Holy of Holies for us to reconcile us with God and tearing that curtain to pieces on the way out so all of us now have access. In Christ we pray, amen.